0: It uh, results in hundreds and hundreds of sommeliers around the world training to compete in their regional championships to make it to the national championships to be able to represent their countries in the international competitions So for every winner there are hundreds of sommeliers who are studying, who are tasting, who are training and who are trying to become better professionals and this is a great way to bring up the overall level uh, around the world.
1: Hello and welcome to the Xeno Wine Co podcast. I'm David Clark. Xanemo Wine Co is a wine distributor based in Cape Town. Please go to our website exanimo.co.za, for more on what we do. The purpose of this podcast is to document the stories in South African wine. We are interested in how we got to where we are today and where we're going tomorrow. Thank you very much for joining us. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine is at least for now forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. We are using the internet to record these podcasts, and it doesn't always behave. Apologies for any issues with the audio. I've tried to edit it to make it as listenable as possible. This episode is the last of the per day episodes that we're going to do, but we will keep podcasting, but it won't be as frequent. Today on the podcast, we have Andreas Rosberg, president of the Association Sommelier Internationale, ASI. The ASI runs many activities, the most notable being the best sommelier of the world contest and all of the associated regional competitions. Andreas is from Argentina and as such is the first president of the ASI to come from the Southern Hemisphere. I first met Andreas in 2019 while he was on a trip to South Africa by the ASI technical committee to plan that year's best sommelier of the world competition. Andreas and I chat on many subjects, including a little bit of his history in the wine industry, his time with the Argentinian Sommelier Association, his time so far in the ASI, his experiences in South Africa last year, and the parallels he sees between Argentinian and South African wine industries, and many other topics. From my point of view, as president, he has modernised the ASI somewhat their horizons and as a result the ASI is is much less Eurocentric which is a great thing. Andreas is very easy to talk to and it was a very interesting conversation for me. I hope you enjoy it. I give you Andreas Rosberg. I'm here with Andreas Rosberg. Andreas how are you?
0: I'm very well thanks. I'm happy
1: to be here. Cool man thanks for thanks for joining us. Andreas not everyone will know who you are maybe just give us a quick introduction of what you're doing now, and maybe your life in line up until this point.
0: I am a sommelier uh, by training and formation. I am currently the head of the International Sommelier Association. This has been going on for about two and a half years, and it's about to go on for half a year more, if we can meet in half a year. I've run the Arge- I've co-founded and run the Argentine Sommelier Association for eleven years between two thousand and five and twenty sixteen. I was co-founder of the uh, Pan American Sommelier Association in two thousand and seven, and I run it between twenty thirteen and twenty seventeen. So that's so much uh, for you know sommelier associations. I've uh, worked in a sub. Waiter and a bartender and a sommelier for most of my life. In the last few years, I've, well, this last year, a year ago, I, I, I stepped out of the floor. Um, at the same time, I put together a group of investors and we planted a vineyard in, uh, in Mendoza, in Argentina, in the Uco Valley. So I'm a, you can say I am a vigneron if you want. I grow <laughs> grapes and sell them to, the, to some of the wineries in, in Mendoza. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, I wrote a book, I talk a little bit, I do lectures, Um, right now my uh, latest project is uh, I just put together and launched um, a small website where we are concentrating all the um, information on wine deliveries in the current uh, pandemic situation, so... Consumers know where to find that information and so that we can also help, you know, restaurants selling their wines and wine stores and small producers who are not selling their wines in the supermarkets. So, yeah, I write, I talk, I I, I try to, to keep myself busy. <laughs> but I yeah. have a number of different hats. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, you a busy, busy boy. What is it about sommelier associations that you like so much?
0: It's not like I... Uh, liked something about them and, and wanted to, to found them and run them. But, you know, back in the early days when I first got my title as sommelier in uh, 2000, so 20 years ago this year, 21 years ago this year, we were told that we could form an association and enter the International Sommelier Association and compete in international you know, sommelier competitions. And that kind of triggered our interest to form an Argentine Sommelier Association. I was a co-founder there, but I didn't run it at first. And the story goes is uh, we had our first ever Best Familia of Argentina competition in 2002. And I had a loose capsule in the service test and in the final. And so redundantly, I screwed up <laughs> and, and lost uh, some time and uh, ended up being the runner-up in that first ever competition in Argentina. I decided I was very mad when that happened. Of course, I didn't have the experience I have today. Today, I would just you know take the full capsule out and that's it, but at the time, it didn't occur to me. But back then, I decided that I was gonna run again the following year. Of course, those were the early days of the Argentine Sommelier Association, and it wasn't as strong as it is today. The following year, the president and the vice president had a fight and nothing was happening in the association. Uh, Nothing happened the following year either and nothing happened the following year either. So I started complaining because I wanted to have my second chance. And eventually they said, you know what, you can take over it. You You deal with it. And um, so in 2005, they elected me president of it and I couldn't rent anymore. I couldn't compete anymore because I was a president. You know, they say in every crisis there is an opportunity. So I became the president of the Argentine Seminary Association. Associations are tools that allow you to do things that you would never be able to do from the private sector or that you would never be able to do alone. In terms of promoting seminary, in terms of helping people train and travel and be recognized in in terms of getting uh, some uh, stories published about the career so that it would inspire others to study it, and it would mostly inspire restaurants to hire sommeliers. So eventually it was quite clear that there were a number of things that you could do with an association that you couldn't do on your own in 2007 we created the pan american somebody association basically because of this uh, same type of feeling you know we were very few members of the americas in asi you know asi at that time and still is uh, quite eurocentric but at that time the americas didn't have any presence uh, perhaps the Canadians did because they were closely related to the French. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Canadian Sommelier Association was was quite... Uh, actually, I think it was uh, based only in Quebec and it was opened up afterwards to the rest of Canada. So we created up Pan-American Association with a view to gaining some more critical mass in the International Sommelier Association. and And we certainly did. And also... Uh, with a view to kind of bridge the gap between our sommeliers and you know, the sommeliers of the elite, the people who are competing in a first-class level. And we've made progress on that front as well. We also discovered that we could take sommeliers into new countries in the Americas. So, you know, it was six countries when we began, and now it's over. I think it's 11 or 12. It worked, of course. Being there when the Pan American Association was created allowed Argentina to organize the first ever Best Sommelier of the Americas competition in Argentina in 2009. And again, this was a good opportunity to bring sommeliers from all around the continent and uh, perform in Argentina. It was great to to show this level of competition to our sommeliers. So it was a big success. Opened the door. I said, you know, if we did a an American competition. Maybe we can do a general assembly in a couple of years and bring in all the presidents of the International Sommelier Association and meet here, which we did in 2012. And it was another good experience. Uh, We also made it coincide with our national competition. Eventually, we did the general assembly of the International Sommelier Association in 2012. We gathered all the presidents of ASI in Argentina. We also made it coincide with our uh, local national competition so we used them as judges and that was also very stimulating for our association and eventually afterwards you know we were nominated in 2013 to run the Indoza in 2016 which we did and this was a blockbuster you know we had I don't know, five, six hundred people coming from all over the world. Some of the top sommeliers of the world coming. They were the former best sommeliers of the world were judging the competition. Every sommelier representing every country was a star in his country and uh, worked in the best restaurants of the world. It was uh, supported by the Argentine wine sector very, very strongly. And all of a sudden, the Argentine Sommelier Association stopped being uh, the Cinderella of the wine sector that it had been for a few years at the beginning. And uh, all of a sudden, it was a well-respected player in the world of wine in, in Argentina. This all helped develop sommelier in Argentina. At the same time, in that world competition in 2016, the Argentine candidate placed fourth, so the highest ranking for a latin american ever of course if you come to mendoza it's a bit like if when you go to cape town the landscapes are awesome the food's great people are super friendly you know just being there helps you understand the country and appreciate what's good about the country and well most of the different presidents of the national associations attending that competitions were well impressed and that resulted in me being elected president of asi a year later it's not like I was pushing to do these things. It's like, yeah. uh, you know, you like know no. of, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and one thing is leading to the other. I, I, I remember the feeling of, of running to organize the Best Family of the World competition. You know, in 2013, when I was presenting Argentina's candidature, you know, we had, an, uh, well, we had the same populist uh, government that we have today, and I knew the country wasn't doing good economically or politically. We were going to have elections at the end of 2015. So in 2016, we would have a new government. And I knew I was, you know, getting myself into a big mess. And, and the Argentine Sommelier Association is a strong association today, but it's not like, I don't know, the French or the Japanese Sommelier Associations, which are huge and have uh, plenty of resources and uh, I remember feeling, oh my God, what am I getting into here? <laughs> you know? How am I going to get this done? Because it's so it's such a large challenge. But at the same time, the opportunity of bringing all these top sommeliers to Mendoza, showing them our culture, our landscapes, our wines, our food, our people, was just. Uh, too big to not take a shot at it. So I remember having uh, really mixed feelings and going into the challenge, you know, <laughs> with heavy feet because mm. it was. I knew it was going to be very complex. Also, you know, running a assembly association is something that you do pro bono. You don't get paid to do it. So eventually, it did take a toll on my personal life and my personal income as i spent i don't know two years working almost full time organizing this competition but you know at the end of the day it paid off it it worked out people were happy with the uh, competition and you know all of a sudden i was thrown into the following challenge which was you know being elected of uh, head of uh, asi
1: maybe just for people who don't know what I- asi is just very briefly just What's the remit for ASI? It's the, the Association for the National Sommelier Associations.
0: Yes. The International Sommelier Association. So in English it would be IASA. Hmm. Uh, we call it ASI because of its name in French. Uh, the International Sommelier Association is a not-for-profit association founded in 1969, so 50 years ago, in France, by a few Somali associations in europe and basically they set out to defend the profession of the sommelier and to communicate it to help uh, sommeliers uh, train you know back then there was no google <laughs> and uh, a few books available and to convince restaurant owners to hire sommeliers and to convince consumers that they could use the service of the sommelier and to and this is a probably a very uh, french or very european thing to defend A certain lifestyle that comes with the Mediterranean diet and culture. This simple idea grew to what it is today, which is an association of national Somali associations formed by 61 national Somali associations and representing some 40,000 plus Somaliers around the world. AESI's big. Uh, activities or bigger activities are organizing uh, sommelier competitions we organize uh, best assembly of the world competition every three years and we also organize uh, continental competitions one is the best assembly of the Americas we also do a best of of Asian Oceania and we do a best assembly of Europe and Africa which is the next competition and it's scheduled to take place in uh, Cyprus next uh, November, if uh, COVID uh, allows it to happen. And of course, these competitions are important, you know, because there is a winner and the winner becomes an ambassador for the profession and a person who promotes our metier around the world. But also, it is important because it gives ASI plenty of exposure, uh, it gives us a chance to show people what we do. But most of all, it Uh, results in hundreds and hundreds of sommeliers around the world training to compete in their regional championships, to make it to the national championships, to be able to represent their countries in the international competitions. So for every winner, there are hundreds of sommeliers who are studying, who are tasting, who are training, and who are trying to become better professionals. And this is a great way to bring up the overall level uh, around the world. We also do, of course, our annual meetings. Our annual meetings used to be you know, just a general assembly when we decided when we meet and what we do. But now we do bigger events. We use the opportunity to do um, some master classes and we go to a different country every year. As of a couple of years ago, when I was elected, we started doing these NOMAD annual meetings and this is also great because it allows us to visit a different country every year, to learn about that country, to network with the sommeliers and the wine sector of that country. And it allows also the partners of ASI to, you know, to meet the, the local sommeliers and the local press of one different country every year. Um, So there is an educational plus networking event there that we do every year as well. Uh, A few years ago, ASI started a certification, which basically consists in one exam that you can take if you are a member of a National Sommelier Association. You can take this exam and eventually and hopefully you will pass it and you will become an ASI certified sommelier. Uh, that helps you know because it's recognized by all 61 member countries of ASI around the world Um, we're now working on you know polishing and developing and communicating service standards Uh, we did a great uh, tutorial video a couple of years ago where you can see all the tests in a international sommelier competition and you see the best performances there and you have our dear friend uh, Gérard Basset speaking and telling you exactly what is expected from each candidate in each test of a international sommelier competition. So basically we are, you know, we set out to, to promote sommelier around the world, you know, to, to improve it where it exists, to take it where it doesn't exist, and to hopefully... You know, help uh, some get recognition uh, for what they do.
1: So we met in Cape Town. Was it that two years ago? I think January nineteen. Was it only that long ago? Was it? I thought it was further on ago. It's just a lot's happened
0: since then. <laughs> I know. It feels it feels like ten years ago, doesn't yeah. it?
1: So you came out uh, on uh, with an ASI uh, entourage with a yes. whole bunch of uh, ex best areas of the world uh, to, I think, plan to plan that, uh, that year's competition. Am I getting that right?
0: It's, it's right. It's, it's part of the same program that I was just telling yeah. you about. We used, you know, every year we have either continental or world competitions. And we have what we call a technical committee formed mostly by former best similiaries of the world. And this committee is meeting every year to organize the, you know, the next competition. Right now we are working on the Assembly of Europe and Africa competition in November. We used to meet, you know, always in France, which was okay, because at least, you know, it's central and, and most of the people in this committee are from, from uh, Europe. But I felt like uh, we needed to move around a little bit, and I felt like it was a good opportunity for... ASI to visit different uh, assembly associations, visit different countries. You know, for the technical committee to use these meetings to to learn a little bit as well, and for different national assembly associations to to do a little ASI event in their countries. Yes, last year we met in in January to organize the best assembly of the world that was taking place in March in in Antwerp, in Belgium. Hmm. And because, you know, the, the SAZA, the South African Somali Association was uh, strongly interested in, and very active in bringing it to South Africa. And also because we had the uh, uh, wide, big support from Klein-Constancia to, to host it uh, in Cape Town, we were able to all come down to South Africa and meet there. A full disclosure note should include that I had never been to South Africa and I was dying to go there. Yeah, so <laughs> it it may have had a little bit uh, to do with that as well.
1: <laughs> well, you know, if you if you're in power, you get you get to you get to use that use that power a little bit at least.
0: But no, but 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 really, it's uh, um, it was great for ASI because you know we could we could uh, show an international somebody association that is truly international, that is going to the different countries uh, that compose it. It was it was great because not all the you know, every member of the technical committee had been to France several times, but not all of them had been to South Africa. We were able to learn and understand South African wine in a way that we didn't before. So, and it was, you know, I think it was a bit of, I hope it was, you know, a bit of a boost for, for the South African Sommelier Association. We met with local sommeliers. We met you, of course. We met with uh, Chenon producers. We, you know, we went to some wineries. We had several meetings with producers. We had great tastings. We had in-depth, uh, in-depth uh, uh, tastings with Klein-Constancia. So it was very, very productive.
1: This is this. This leads perfectly into what I want to talk to you about a little bit. Um, what was your experience of South African wine before coming here?
0: I, I I knew for a fact that South Africa could make wine and that it was a large player in the wine in the world of wine. That being said, you know I did, you know I, I lived in Europe briefly, but you know I grew up and I spent most of my life in Argentina, and with Argentina being a large producer. The truth is that we have very little exposure uh, to imported wines. So yes, I you know I get to travel quite a bit and I get to taste more than the average sommelier does in Argentina. You know I've been to every Vinexpo show since two thousand and one. You know I've I had some exposure to South African wine, but. Uh, um, not great, and, and coming to one place is key to understanding it. So I would say I had lots of respect mm. for South Africa, but not that much uh, understanding or real knowledge about it. I did profit from that visit. <laughs> mm. And I still think I don't know enough. I still think I should spend more time there, but uh, then that's uh, that's a tough one, you know.
1: And do you think that was probably similar for the, uh, for the other members of the group that came down? I mean, obviously you spend a lot of time in that group and it's, it's, it is a group trip, isn't it? So you are uh, with each other a lot of the time. It was, was, yeah. that, was that a constant thing throughout it, the visit?
0: It was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 of us. Some of the members of that group had been to South Africa at least once. A couple had been there more than once and had a more extensive knowledge of South Africa different levels of exposure. Um, but I think we all profited from it. This being said, you know, if you live in New York, like Arvid Rosengren, the current head of the technical committee does, or if you live in Scandinavia, like Andreas Larsson, who is also best somebody of the world, lives in Sweden, you know, if you live in these countries, or, or Japan, or these are countries that have a much larger imports market so they also have a more more access uh, fluid and more access relationship with uh, south african wine you know it's you know if if you live in scandinavia or the u.s you you know south african uh, wine is as part of your everyday life but we all learned from being there and we all had a good time and we all tasted wines that we didn't know before that's for sure and you know we had a particularly impressive dinner where you were having dinner with us.
1: At the, having, the, old, the old wine
0: dinner? Yeah, we had, you know, South African wines that were 15, 20, 30, 40 years old and that were still stunning. I think that was a eye-opener for all of us.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, before I came here, I hadn't tasted a, a South African wine because obviously coming from Australia, South African wine hasn't got a big footprint there either. Well,
0: Exactly. Uh, yeah,
1: I mean it. It has a It has a big imported um, input. So, but mostly from Europe. It's either local or it's European in Australia. And I, and I include sort of New Zealand wine in a in the local sense there as well. Yeah. So anything else from the New World, you you don't really get hold of. So, um, you, smatterings of stuff from South Africa, smatterings of stuff from South America, smatterings of stuff from North America, and but you know really in depth international. Uh, sorry, European European wines. So. When we did that old wine dinner, because at that time I was the vice chair of Sasa under oh, Higo, who was, the, um, who was the chairman at the time. Mm-hmm. So we were responsible to put on a couple of events each. So we decided to put on that uh, old wine dinner because that was one of the real things that shocked me when I moved here was that the quality of the wines pre-mid 70s was extraordinary, uh, which I had no idea about. I mean, the quality of the wines between sort of late 70s and mid-90s as, as expected, pretty average. But the wines going back 40-plus years, uh, and I think that was borne out by that, by that tasting as well. I'm not sure if, uh, if you, recall, you recall what we tasted, but we, we mostly tasted stuff older than 40 years old going back into the 1950s, and that was a much better experience than we would have had it had we tasted even wines 10 years younger.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I am um, looking up on my uh, Instagram feed because I posted some of these wines when it happened.
1: Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And and we tasted all the way down to the to the sixties, I think, or fifty. I think there's a fifty-eight cabinet. I mean, um, a... yeah. So yeah. we had a pinotage by Last. That was mm-hmm. a weird. The one time uh, they did uh, pinotage, uh, yes. we did. Sanso from the 80s, the Blanc de Blanc from Klein, Constantia from 87. I did all sorts of things. I did uh, old vintages of uh, Rustenberg and I don't know. Many, many, it was, it was. I think it was, I don't know, maybe what, 15, 20 different wines at least.
1: Yeah, I think it was about 15, 20 years, something like that. And then the other event, um, we did was at Clank Constantia where each of the board members of Sasa bought a couple of different wines to show the ASI group. And I bought a couple of cinsos, cinsos. Mm-hmm. and that seemed to be very surprising for people, uh, for the whole group. I mean, I don't think many people had really come across quite serious uh, modern South African cinso, which I was surprised at, because I, I would have thought that style of wine would have been a lot more prevalent in that sort of, as you say, that New York market in terms of lighter bodied
0: yeah, but... Reds uh, and... Absolutely. But that's the kind of stuff that you read about. You find it in London and New York, but mm. you don't find it in, you know, continental Europe. <laughs> that yeah, much. right. Uh, you know, uh, the French, the Swiss, you know, these guys are more conservative, <laughs> I think. I think we had all read about it and how it was becoming an important thing in South Africa. But, you know, we probably didn't have that much exposure to it. Arvid in New York was probably the exception, Andreas Larsson maybe also. But, uh, you know, we all grew up on thinking that South Africa was about pinotage uh, uh, Chanel. So, and Chanel. And, you know, some of the members of the technical committee are also people who have uh, been competing some years ago. So for for some of us, I think it was, you know, as 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 you said it was educating it was enlightening it was uh I think I think the same can be said about the 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 pinot noir from uh Hermelinarder you know we we had uh of course we all we had all uh, our knowledge of you know Hamilton and whatever but you know when we did the tasting we had all this pinots I remember the the, the pinots from uh Andres Storm that I hadn't tasted before, and I was like, wow, what is this? This is, yeah, this is, this is proper wine. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is some serious Pinot going on here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think I think at the end of the day, we were able to, to speak with so many producers and meet sommeliers and taste old vintages. And, you know, I think we all had our mm-hmm moment there. Yeah. You know, like, oh, you know, it's like, yeah. you know it was different moments for different people i think but it was uh, and and but that's the, that's the beauty of, of 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 the world of wine and you can be a best of the world and still be learning and, and enjoying these things it's, it's fantastic it's it's a very uh, generous career i think in that sense
1: and it's full of generous people who want to absolutely make your life better and and, and share their passion, and and involve you, and and and, and, that, and that that focus on sharing is is has is been one that uh, is, uh, one I've really enjoyed in the twenty or thirty years, or not thirty, for twenty years that I've been in in the industry as well.
0: It's the people in wine that also make it all the more interesting, as you're just saying. That feeling of of enthusiasm when you're opening a bottle of wine that you've never tasted before,
1: especially if it's with somebody who knows a little bit about the wine and can give you
0: context exactly exactly but even even as a sommelier you know Mm. and even entry-level wines you know you go to a table you have I don't know a couple there's two young kids you know it's a date whatever they order a bottle of wine it's probably not the best wine it's probably even a, a commercial wine you know there is at least one fraction of a second that they, their eyes are sparkling in anticipation of what's going to come out of that bottle. And, yes. and that little moment, for me, it's magical. On top of that, you do it with a friend or somebody you love or you know, uh, the winemaker who can give you context on the wine. I mean, if on top of that you understand it, it's even the more pleasurable. It's the beauty of wine. It, it's, it's always a different trip, right?
1: Yeah, so, no, absolutely. Period yeah and uh, you know and 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 one bottle never says never tastes the same you know it does it does change so yeah it's a it's a it's an it's an impossible task it's an impossible job we give ourselves but it's uh the pursuit is um (laughs) is very pleasurable and uh (laughs) there are worse ways to make a living
0: (laughs) it's it's a career that we start and we know that we are bound to lose you know we know we're never going to win we're never going to Taste all the wines on earth. Yeah, but, there's no,
1: there's no, there's no end. It's, there's the, yeah.
0: <laughs> but it's 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 worth running it though.
1: Um, just a couple more questions on South African wine. What was the biggest takeaway you got from from what was happening here? Uh, was it a particular wine? Was it a sort of a uh, a, a vibe um, among the, the producers, or a confidence, or what was the most? Sort of, what were you taking away? So when when people in wine asked you, what was your time in South Africa like? What what are you telling them?
0: I I kind of confirmed what I suspected. I think I I was blown away by the wines I had coming from Argentina and having studied South Africa. And, you know, when you go by the books, it's all about Chenin and Pinotage. I had tasted other wines from South Africa, you know, throughout my career. I knew there was more than just that. But being there, speaking with so many people who are smart and 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 passionate and uh sharing information like crazy i if if anything, my impression was um, I felt a similar thing um, to what I feel in Argentina, which is I think Argentina right now is making the best wine it 's ever made, and I hmm. suspect that South Africa has the same thing, I suspect that Uh, And again, this is an impression. You know, I might be wrong. One of the big things in Argentina is that change of generations has had a big impact. Like, I don't know, 20 years ago, winery owners wouldn't really talk to each other because they were a competition. And it was just a bunch of families, not that very many of them. And today, it's the total opposite. Today, their kids are running their wineries and, and they get together to taste and have dinner every week or every second week. And they buy the best wines in the world and bring them back. And they sit down with their wines and the wines they bring back and share and ask questions. And the flow of information is super fast. You know, it's mm. like they're sharing know-how like they never did before. And this is having an impact on the, on the speed at which know-how is incorporated into the winemaking. In many wines in Argentina, if you do a vertical tasting of the last 10 years, you know, there were good wines 10 years ago, and, and some of these wines have improved over these 10 years. But quite often, the younger wines are better because the speed at which the winemaking and the understanding of the terroir and the use of oak has evolved, you know, and made bigger improvements than the p- simple pass of time. Does that make any sense? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're just uh, simply better so
0: wines. It's just simply better wines, and, you know, they don't, have, they don't carry the years with them, but you mm-hmm. know that in 10 years' time, they, were, they are going to be better than those wines you have from 10 years ago. That's a quick question.
1: Yeah, Good question. Uh, are, these, is there, are these established producers with the, the generation change, or is there new young producers starting up their own uh, wine brands and wineries, or is it both?
0: It's, it's both. Some of the young producers don't have 10 vintages uh, mm. in their back, so it's easier sometimes to do that 10-year challenge with uh, more established producers. But I, was, I, think, I was
1: sort I of think more, more about sort of what you're saying, like the, the Argentina making their best wines is it new players or is it established players who have changed
0: it's it's both okay it's both you know you you have the the, the same thing uh, i don't know maybe that the example of uh, i understand if i'm not wrong that ada storm was waymaker at hamilton russell correct right yeah so you get the established one and then somebody who worked there and then left and started his own project and now you have the know-how of a single estate is multiplied by two yes basically or or even more because you know they probably learned from each other when they were together so uh, I th- something like that is happening here I, you know i felt like something similar was going on in south africa i mm. was uh, you know we had uh, tastings of uh Shunan producers and we had stunning wines and many different styles of wines and 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 they were all great you know some were oaked some were not then we did the tasting with the producers of wines with the old vineyards, and it was the same thing you know some of them were I think established producers some of them were newcomers and they were all making wines that were interesting so my feeling above all was hey South Africa is making some pretty awesome wines and the situation is you know really dynamic it's like really moving fast which together with some similarities uh, that we have in, in in terms of culture and um, social political uh, structure of our countries you know it, it kind of did make me feel at home you know I, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, I was. And lots of I, I could, uh, and, lots, and
1: lots of meat cooking as well probably made you feel like uh, exactly
0: yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that, that, also, that coals, also
1: helped on coals. Yeah. I was
0: like, hey, you know, I could relate to that. I was yeah, like, yeah. hey, I, I'm feeling good here. It's like, <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: so it was, it was very pleasant.
1: Lots of uh, lots of short pants and bare feet and uh, and red meat on coals. Yeah. so it's uh, it's not that exactly. far away. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, No, I, I can I can relate to that.
1: Coming out of it, do you still think that the most internationally relevant styles coming out of South Africa are Chenin Blanc and Pinot just just through weight of plantings and uniqueness or do you think there is space for uh, other styles to be sort of synonymous with, with South Africa in an international context?
0: Oh no, I think there's a wealth of styles of wines coming out from South Africa that are world class both in a way of new styles of of uh chenon and pinotage you know chenon blanc with uh, skin contact uh yeah you you gave me a very nice bottle of carbonic maceration pinotage you know so there is a twist that's being um being made on this uh, more traditional varieties but there is no doubt now that that are world-class wines being made with as you say Sanso and Chardonnay and Pinot and Cabernet. I don't know if you feel and, and, and this is me asking you questions, but yeah. do do you ever feel like the world kind of wants to frame South Africa and, and limit it to, you know, Pinotages and and Chenin Blanc?
1: Yeah, I mean, just say, the same way with Argentina, you sort of you get locked into Malbec, and that was it. You know, even if like the yeah. one producer's making a kick-ass uh, Cabernet or Cabernet Franc or Syrah, it's like no, 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 we, well, it's Argentinian. It has to be the Malbec. So I think there's a similar exactly. thing with South Africa. That's, no matter no matter exactly how good the Chardonnay is going to be, it's always going to be a bridesmaid to Burgundy. Um, whereas the Shannon, I think has been able to step outside of its Loire roots because it is, as you say, such a different stylistic and and it works in a different way on a wine list. You know, you're not, you're not not serving a a, either a Loire Shannon, like a a Vouvray or a South African Shannon because they are completely different wines.
0: Exactly. But, you know, I, I felt that too. And I'm like, you know, it's, come on, there is, there are great wines that are being made with all those different great varieties. And, you know, again, I I had this idea before I went. I confirmed it when I was there. I find it a little awkward that you have to be locked in into your varieties and you don't touch mm. mine kind of thing. <laughs> but, uh, but but I think, you know, some of the wines we had were world class, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. even though the so- the Sauvignon Blanc from Klein Constantia were brilliant, yet... You know, there is like a a glass ceiling when it comes to the mainstream varieties and the pricing, right?
1: Yes, yeah. There is a there is a tax to be uh, to be paid when you have uh, wine of South Africa on the bottle or wine of Argentina on the bottle. Still, unfortunately, for, yes. for some varieties. I mean, I'm. I mean, my opinion is that Syrah uh, is a is is the the strongest red variety coming out of South Africa at the moment. Uh, in terms of, I would absolutely go to war with some South African Syrahs against the top Syras of the world and obviously Mm -hmm. Shannon for the whites but I realised that in an international market people aren't buying necessarily South African when they buy South African they want something a little bit more uniquely South African rather than a Syrah if that makes sense because it's not super stylistically different than something out of the out of um, the west coast of the U.S. or the Rhone or, you know, the cooler parts of Australia or the northern parts of New New Zealand, for example?
0: Yeah, well, it's, uh, we, Syrah is a tough sell anywhere. The places that sell Syrah sell places more than they sell Syrah. Yeah, right. Uh, And that's something that we have uh, to, to, to work a little bit on, I think, which is, you know, speaking about the places, what than we do about the varieties? Of course, there are the, the number of varieties is way smaller than the number of places, and easier for the consumer to remember. But when it comes to 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 talking about the the of South Africa, I agree with you. I had some great examples. It's more of a very slow process of uh, education. You know, you have to be like. Um, like the the Mormons ring in the door
1: every <laughs> Sunday morning. Hopefully not as annoying, but yeah, as persistent perhaps.
0: <laughs> you know, it's like. You have to go door by door. by door. You have to be ringing the bell and explaining it.
1: No, it is a glass by glass uh, situation for sure. I think, uh, uh, yeah, I'm certainly not, not thinking any different. Just quickly on the shenan, you said you, you drank a lot of it and it is, you know, a fairly, uh, well, it, it is the most significant style out of South Africa. Is it confusing that there is so many different styles of shenan and there isn't a sort of a, an indication of the label or even a, an area that, that you can sort of see on the on the outside of the bottle, read on the, on the label, that you're going get an indication of the style? Do you think it's an advantage um, in the fact that it's so diverse or do you think it's a disadvantage that it's too complicated?
0: Ooh, that's a good question. I think diversity is an advantage. I think, you know, as long as diversity is diversity of styles and not diversity of quality. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I'm
1: talking styles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, no. I know you are, but if mm. uh, you go to Chablis. You have oak Chardonnay and an, o- an, an oak Chardonnay. You wouldn't question it, I think. It'd be boring if it was all stylistically the same. I think. Yeah. Um, I think once, once you establish the reputation for the 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 origin, and, you know, you have to to start browsing through the producers, and and it's interesting to to investigate between one and the other. Mm -hmm. Of course, this probably plays better in a restaurant than in a supermarket because, you know, if you have a sommelier to explain it to you, you know, would you like the lighter or the heavier, the oaky or not oaky, the skin contact or non-skin contact? You know, you probably have, uh, you know, your your guy evangelizing there uh, in order to explain these differences. But for me, it's, um, you know, diversity is something that I celebrate and that yeah. I embrace, that I yeah. embrace. Do, 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 how do you feel about that? Um, well,
1: within South Africa, it's even quite difficult to, to talk about Chenin, because there is wines at every price point from the bottom, bottom end uh, of the bottom shelf of the supermarket. And the top, top end of white wine in South Africa tends to be Chenin Blanc as well. Um, so yes. trying to trying to get that point across that things can be both. I mean, one variety can can have that diversity of not only style, but quality. I mean, there is a – I wanted to talk about style more, but we can talk about quality as well. There is a diverse range of quality in South African chenin. It is the, mm-hmm. the most planted variety. It is a bulk variety in terms of it can grow in most places. It grows quite well. It yields quite well. From my point of view, it, it's more frustrating trying to – it's the dual messaging problem with Shannon from South Africa in terms of it's well, it's a really good wine at all price points. But people see it as a bulk wine, you know, Shannon and then you're trying to tell the guys who are, you know, drinking top end burgundy and, and you know great Mosel Rieslings that no, 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 it's proper top end South African Shannon should be in amongst those wines in terms of quality as well. It's a, it's a difficult it's a difficult one to do both with
0: yeah uh at the, at the same time you know we, we have one thing in argentina we have a similar thing you know well the the entry level reds aren't small because small has now become a, a rather expensive grape and it doesn't yield that much but you know the mid price or entry level plus price to top wines of argentina we have malbecs in all categories and we have you know Carbonic maceration Malbec, we have uh, oaked, commercial, we have sparkling wine of Malbec, we have even white wine of Malbec. I I used to do uh, all Malbec tasting menus on Malbec World Day where you could do like nine courses all with Malbec. We would do sparkling white rose, unoaked, oaked, and fortified, and even grappa of Malbec to finish it up. So it's across the board, a bit like Chenon is in South Africa. But one of the things that's very interesting now is that as producers have uh, started using less oak in their Malbecs, uh, we have discovered that Malbec is a fantastic variety to show provenance as a very plastic variety. You know, Malbec from Mendoza has nothing to do with the Malbec from uh, Patagonia, and at the same time, it has nothing to do with the Malbec from Salta. You know, I'm I'm talking like radically different wines coming out of the same vineyard. What is going on with Malbec now is that when you go into the you know the good Malbecs. Malbec has become a way, you know, and, and this is something I am using in some of my presentations. Malbec has become a great tool to explain Argentine, Argentina's viticulture and Argentina's wine regions. Yeah. Because I can give you a Malbec that are similarly made in all parts of Argentina or in most parts of Argentina, and I can explain you know, what the soils are and what the weather is like in each wine region through the wine, and you can see it because the wines are radically different. And, you know, they show a cooler weather or a heavier soil or a higher content of calcium carbonate. So it's, it's in a way, for me now, it's, it's a fantastic tool to explain the wine regions and the different weathers and the different soil compositions of the different uh, wine growing areas of Argentina um, and it's becoming a very educational thing and you know at the same time what we're seeing now is that all these wines because you know all these wines are aging nicely and for me if if your wine tells you where it comes from and if it ages uh, gracefully. Well, these are two of the most, you know, two of the strongest indicators of quality. So, and many producers are making single vineyard or single parcel mile bags of different places in Mendoza. And and very often now you can compare, you know, one geographical indication next to the other. And these are the same producers... You know, the vineyards are trained the same. It's probably not the same genetic material because there is so much of it, uh, particularly when it comes to Malbec, because it's all planted with muscle selections, you know, that were brought in into Argentina before phylloxera At the same time, you see wines that are made in a very similar way with the same criteria, harvested at the same bricks, but are wines that are totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is an interesting you know, tasting to do.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I was last in Argentina 1 million years ago in 2008.
0: Um,
1: so, <laughs>
0: yeah, no, yeah, they yeah. didn't have that back then. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was a different world back then. Yeah, yeah, I had fun. I, I need to come back. Another quick question. If you're giving advice to a sommelier trying to train for competitions, what South African wines do you think they need to be familiar with in terms of um, the blind wines?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. I think...
1: I mean, I'm assuming you're know, not going to give them a on out of Pinot Noir.
0: Well, I would kind of love to. <laughs> um, I, I, would, I would do it. You know, I am, I am a bit of a, a black swan in, in, in ASI hmm.
1: um,
0: because I have not won any wine competitions. I'm not the best somebody of the world. I'm not the best somebody of the Americas. I'm not even the best somebody of... Argentina, so uh, I have no pedigree, and I am the youngest president in history. I'm also like the first president ever not to come from continental Europe or Japan. You know you can say i uh, you know I, I have brought in some uh, some changes to to the International So Association in a way, mm. but you know. F- for me, I, I don't want to serve, and this is a matter of discussion in, in the um, in the technical committee when we organize uh, competitions, and I'm often involved in those discussions. You know, I don't want to do uh, very obscure ones. Mm. Like, I wouldn't do a tempranillo. <laughs> you know, yes. From, yeah. um, but... You ask me about, uh, you know, a, a top and Himmel Pinot Noir. That is world class. Well, then that could be interesting, and it could be interesting because, you know, to, to begin with, you know, all the uh, uh, finalists in a competition would would uh, would pick it as a Pinot Noir.
1: Yes, you would uh, hope so because
0: yeah. it has, you know, where they should pick it. Yes. You know, it, it has <laughs> yeah. the it it has the typicity, mm. so they will be able to call the grape. Um, and I think it is very interesting to see what they think the wine comes from when they taste it blind. Mm. And I think, and I think that if they go to Burgundy. And if they go, I don't know, maybe not Grand Cru, but for, you know, Premier Cru or something like that. Mm. I think that is a good way to, you know, demitify, you know, and, and break that glass ceiling that uh, the wines like uh, a good Pinot Noir from Himalinarda have that yes. we were talking about. Mm. So I'm assuming that so, when you have,
1: when you pick these wines, you don't want them... To be too easy because you want to be able to separate the the candidates. So you you actually have to make it a little bit more difficult to give them an opportunity to fail in in a, in, in a sense.
0: Yeah, well, it's 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 always a matter of discussion, and it's mm. always a you know a very thin line and a balancing act. Usually in the you know in the first rounds of a competition because we have three or four rounds of competition, so so in a first round of competition, you would probably pick something that is a bit standard. Um, Just, you know, just to, to take out a large number of people who are not recognizing these wines, which are more easily recognizable. Yes. Uh, Then, then when you're getting into the final, you know, you have the best, Somalians in the final so they are the best trained and they are the best uh, tasters if we had done our job properly in the first uh, two rounds and and then we have to find something that is not too complicated that you know that none of the three finalists will get it you know because then you know if 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 we serve I don't know a Cabernet from Israel. You know, it would probably, you know, probably be a fail for all three of the candidates. Hmm. With all the respect for Cabernet or wines from Israel, but hmm. so it has to be something that is mainstream enough uh, for some of the finalists to recognize it, and hard enough so that it's not recognized by all three finalists. Yeah, understand. Um, yeah. It has to be a little hard, just not that hard that it is impossible.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh,
0: You know, at the end of the day, what we have to do in a final is pick one out of three. So uh, if only one... Uh, picks a wine that we give them blind that 's a big help, but if the three get it or if none of them get it it 's a problem <laughs> you know?
1: yeah yeah yes yeah but well, this this is my my point. you sort of have to give them something that you give them a space to fail, but not a guaranteed fail yeah
0: yeah, so you have to you have to serve i mean I, I would say you have to know if you 're training for a competition, I think you have to know all the standards yes. you know you have to understand uh, 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 Rioja and Chianti, and Barolo, and Bordeaux, and Burgundy, and Pinotage, and Malbec. Mm. But then I think if you want to be competitive, you have to understand like the second group of varieties that come underneath. You know, is <laughs> it like the second largest group, or the second and third largest groups? Yes. Probably takes you into Hemilinard and Pinot, which yeah. probably takes you takes you into Loire, which probably takes you into. Salta Torontes, you know it's um, so. Yeah, yeah, the standards and you know the wannabe standards, <laughs> or the or the candidates' standards. Yeah,
1: you mentioned uh, Torontes. What's happening with um, Argentinian white wine? Is Torontes still the star?
0: I uh, would say Torontes is. Uh, I have a, a bit of a controversial opinion on Torontes. I think Torontes is uh, is is becoming a star. I don't think it was a star. It is Argentina's, you know, emblematic great variety in terms of it is native and Melbeck is not native from Argentina. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's certainly, you know, the the, the flagship for white wines in terms of recognition around the world. Um, Now, at the same time, I also think that we started understanding Torrontes and we started making good torrentes in the last few years. I don't know, five, maybe ten years. You know, maybe when you were in Argentina in two thousand and eight, most of the torrentes were a little bitter, a little terpenic, a little soupy, uh somewhere off dry or totally sweet. You know, we were not somewhere oxidated. Um,
1: yeah, you've pretty you've made, you've nailed it pretty 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 well there. <laughs>
0: So it's in in a way it's like Argentina started t- talking about Torrontes and promoting it before uh, it made great wines with it.
1: Uh because it was a unique, not necessarily high quality.
0: Yeah, um, I think you know we saw that the uniqueness argument work with Malbec, and we thought it was going to work with uh, Torrontes, but I don't think Torrontes was ready yet. Yeah. And 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 this is a bit of a disgrace because a lot of people tried it back then and wasn't totally happy with it, mm. and and classified it as a you know second class grape variety. And the truth is, in the last uh, few years, we are seeing uh, wines made with Torrontes that are stunning uh, and, and and beautiful. Mm. Um, but now a lot of people have uh, prejudices with torrentes. The same thing goes for Malbec to a certain extent, because, uh, you know, Argentina started exporting its Malbecs in the 90s. And of course, during the 90s, it was the golden era of uh, Parker and, and Wine Spectator. And all of a sudden, producers started to make uh, super ripe, super extracted Malbecs, super oaky as well. and. Um, yeah, Australian, you know, Australian Shiraz is
1: still still living that, that same reputation down.
0: Yeah, and and you know it got some people hooked with this variety, and it worked for some time. And uh, you know the US is Argentina's largest market, but in the last ten years, uh, Argentine Malbecs are nothing but you know are completely different. They are not soupy. They are not overripe. They are not overoaked. You know, in fact, uh, you know, many producers are making top-end wines that are not even oaked. Uh, some producers are even bottling it in burgundy bottles instead of mm. Bordeaux bottles. Um, people are doing a whole bunch uh, native yeasts, fermenting in cement. You know, it's totally changed. But with Torrontes, I think it's stronger because Malbec got big and it got a following and, you know, at the end of the day, it became a, a big category and if if you're in the wine trade, you know, modern styles of Malbec. But now we're making fantastic torrentes. And it also comes hand in hand with the second fact, uh, to finish answering your question, which is Argentina is undergoing a white wine re- revolution. Stunning white wines being made in Argentina. And this is a result of two or three things. It's a result of pushing the boundaries for... Vineyards in Argentina, making wine in the south of Patagonia on the 45th, 46th parallel. And these people are making 11% alcohol, 12 grams of total acidity and 2.8, 2.9 pH. So (laughs) wines that are German rather than Argentine. We are people who are producing Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and Albariño by the Atlantic Uh, coast at sea level, uh, you know, three, four or five kilometers away from the sea. Albariño likes the sea, likes the salinity. You know, we have uh, uh, some Albariño there that is just brilliant. In Mendoza or even in, you know, along the Andes, we have pushed the boundaries west and we're planting at higher and higher elevations. And of course, as you go high in elevation, temperatures go down and and you get more acidity so uh in Mendoza some of these whites are are becoming way more vibrant and tense and two things are happening in Mendoza first of all you know some producers are working with uh Chardonnay for many years making stunning charts um something that you know started maybe in the 90s with the Katena family, always worked a lot on Chardonnay and and, and now there's a bunch of people doing this. And there is also a rediscovery of what was Mendoza's white great variety in history. You know, it's... um, when it comes to white wine, the, the flagship white wine from Argentina is Torrontés, but it doesn't come from Mendoza. It comes from the northwest of Argentina, where we have maybe 3 or 4% of the vineyards of Argentina. Whereas Mendoza, which is uh, the largest producing area of Argentina, with 75, 77% of the vineyards of Argentina, the white grape variety there has always been Semillon not torrentes and uh, and there is a revival semillon and uh, we're making stunning semillons you know and and i'm talking semillons that can age you know for 10 15 years that are graceful that are just brilliant wines and, and great values too and we're seeing uh blends of all this you know Semillon and Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon, Sauvignon Blanc and Torrentes to make an Argentine <laughs> white blend that yes. can't be replicated anywhere in the world. Interesting things. In some places in the province of Mendoza, there are very old vineyards of, uh, you know, Tocay Friulano, or as they call it now, uh, Sauvignonasse mm-hmm. that are being uh, rediscovered. Old vineyards of Chena Blanc, too. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, you know Argentina is still known for its reds, but uh, a number of things are going on. Very interesting things are going on with whites. I'm assuming with
1: Argentina's access to high altitude land and obviously all the water that uh, the Andes can give to you, is the is the global is global warming making Argentina looking look more attractive for People who are in in warmer climates and wanting to sort of uh, hedge their bets on on their businesses is there is there in more investment in the in the high altitude, high altitude places in Argentina because of global warming?
0: Well, there is more investment in higher elevation vineyards because they give better and better results. So if you go to Mendoza, you know the Uca Valley was not discovered, but rediscovered but, but uh, by Argentine producers some 20 years ago. You know, wineries gradually plant at higher elevations and they discover they can make uh, interesting wines and they, they plant a little bit more and, and so on. And now we have pl- people planting in Mendoza at 2,000 meters above sea level, which is quite high. You know, we <laughs> <plant a> <laughs> You know we, we used to think the limit was twelve hundred and then it was thirteen and then it was fifteen and then it was seventeen, and now you know we 're seeing two thousand and and some stunning wines coming from up there too so so yes, traditional wineries are expanding their vineyards and moving up a hill, if you want. I would say not necessarily because of global warming, but because you know it gives them the possibility of of growing wines that are more tense and with higher natural acidity. Uh, And, you know, you get a more vertical, more linear structure. And and in many of these high-altitude vineyards, there are also very high levels of uh, calcium carbonate, which is also very interesting. Mm. Um, You know, planting in Patagonia to hedge against global warming is still little. Uh, what you see in Patagonia is, uh, normally it's the locals who are planting, You know, it's like the local guy from the region wants to make wine and starts a vineyard um, or an existing vineyard expanse. Um, but with all the problems Argentina has, uh global warming is uh not the main issue. <laughs> right. you know We should probably be paying more attention to it um, but global warming is not the bigger issue uh, mm. I would say I would say water is becoming an issue in many places you know mendoza San Juan is over ninety percent of the vineyards of Argentina, and these are deserts you know mm. only three percent of the surface of Mendoza is cultivated. And it has to be irrigated with either melted snow from the Andes or with drip irrigation with water that you pump from the underground. And we have seen now four or five years of low rainfall, low snowfall, uh, having some issues with the aquifers. You know, it's, it's forbidden to, to drill new wells uh, oh. to plant new vineyards you know, slowly, eventually in some places they are allocating a well or two, but it is an issue that has been going for, for, I don't know, maybe five or six years now in the province of uh, Salta in the Northwest of Argentina. Water is even a bigger issue, but it's always been like this. It's not because of global warming in Salta. You plant your vineyards, you know, in the middle of the cacti, literally. Right. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And it's, It's not unusual for someone wanting to plant a vineyard in in Salta to have to buy, I don't know, 2,000 hectares of, you know, rocks and sand and cacti in order to have a minimum water rights of a little stream of water that comes down to irrigate maybe five hectares of vineyard. Yes, yes. Yeah, water is an issue. I don't, see that much uh, investment going on in, in Patagonia, which would be the biggest place to hedge against drought or, or climate change. You know, mm. it's going on very slowly. But because you don't see that much investment in Argentina in general, yeah. Because of the current economical situation. Patagonia is, you know, comprises uh, one, two, three, four, five provinces. We are or six provinces, sorry we are planting vineyards now in four of them. You know, the four provinces are very different uh, realities.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One of them is a big oil producer. So filthy rich until two weeks ago. Yes. <laughs> the other, two of the others are, you know, big in tourism because they have uh, ski resorts and, Uh, And uh, amazing forests and lakes, so they have tourism. They were doing big on tourism again uh,
1: until a month ago. (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, you know, Patagonia is is uh, there. You know, you can't say these are poor provinces. Okay. Uh, Although there is a lot of poverty, there is a lot of poverty in them. Uh, You know, Argentina's number before covid was over one third of the population was under the line of poverty i think by the time covid is over it's going to be over half of the people are going to be under the line of poverty Mm. um but these aren't particularly poor provinces and in fact they are you know they are desertic except for you know the the west because in the west of uh, of these provinces uh, they, and the Andes mountains go down, and they start getting some humidity coming from the Pacific. Uh, but they're mostly desertic. But they do cattle. They have oil. They have tourism. They have ski. They have, you know, they have some wealth to them. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just you know Argentina is a land of contrasts. So you yes. have uh, both poor and rich areas in these places. Yeah but again the whole of patagonia together accounts for probably 5% if that much of the vineyards of argentina yeah. so it's 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 overrepresented in the press and in the uh, in the exports and in the price of their wines yes um because they make they make uh, such uh, distinct wines and because Waymaking there is so extreme that you can't really make entry-level wines. Yep.
1: Uh, yeah. Yes, so so there's no good bulk good, wine. Uh,
0: yeah. Waymaking is, is so extreme that, that the economics of scale doesn't, that they don't work for, for entry-level wines. You know, they're not big in volume, but they're very interesting in terms of the wines that they are making.
1: You're making me want to go back now. That's right. Well, cool. you should. Yeah, no, I should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just pop on a plane, no problems. I, to, I think...
0: <laughs> Piece of cake.
1: Yeah, it's just a, a quick a quick trip over the uh, the South Atlantic, and uh, I'll be there in uh, well,
0: eight. You know, nine the hours. devaluation the devaluation of our currency has been so dramatic that whenever you can hop on a plane and come over, this is going to be a very inexpensive country.
1: <laughs> and to be honest, there's not many uh, countries you can travel to with the rand that uh, that is attractive in terms of exchange rates. So
0: Argentina's Argentina's largest market. We drink seventy five percent of our production at home. We're large wine drinkers, you know, as a result of the population of Argentina being largely made uh, up of Italian and Spanish immigrants, European immigrants, which is also why when you take a look at wine consumption in Argentina, it has followed the same patterns as in Italy or Spain or France, which is also why the vineyard ownership structure in Argentina follows the same structure, you know, that you have in the Mediterranean. You know, we have, uh, the average size of a vineyard in Argentina is, uh, eight hectares and the average age is 40 years old. We have a very atomized, uh, production and, uh, a fair number of, uh, really old vineyards, uh, in Argentina. It's it's interesting because when you take most, I don't know exactly how it was in South Africa, but when you take, you know, California or Chile, their wine industries were uh, copying the Bordeaux model, if you want. But Argentina was the other way around. It was uh, the immigrants planting, you know, vineyards and coming into Argentina with a few cuttings and planting one, two, three, four hectares. So... Argentina's viticulture grew from the people up, which is why which is why our historical per capita consumption has been much larger than the consumption per capita in the US or in Chile. You know, yeah. it has to do with the fact that it is related to our demographics and the you know the composition of our society.
1: Yeah, it was within the culture, not added to the culture. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you very much. I really do appreciate Don't your worry. time. And uh, good to see you again and good to talk. Uh, best of luck with the, uh, with the rest of your no, it's good to uh, COVID. You. And, uh, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll, we'll share a bottle of um, nice Malbec for uh, new Torontes. I'm looking forward to trying some, uh, some more modern Torontes uh, soon. Absolutely. Cool, man. Thanks very Absolutely. much.
0: Look forward to sharing some vino. And um, great to see you. And thanks for, for the chat. Ah, thanks for the opportunity.